you ever drank it fast, it'd clean out your sinuses for years. <laughs> I mean, it, it produced cases of the bends. It was so gassy. And it, 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 but they had this contest, see, and it was in the paper. It says the Knee-High Orange Company is sponsoring this fantastic $50,000 jackpot prize award Sports Heroes of the Past contest. Well, if there's anything that the old man knew about, it was sports. He knew every Chicago White Sox player who'd ever, ever put on a White Sox uniform before they even had a team. <laughs> he knew White Sox players that just got called up for 20 minutes. You know, late in September, and were immediately sent back to Decatur, he could tell you. Not to mention Luke Dappling. He could say, now, never interrupt an artist and say, wait, I want to paint the other side of it for I'm you. I'm in it with you. <laughs> I know that. That's the problem with my storytelling. It always draws a piece of <laughs> it. So, first of all, he started like he started all the contests, innocently. You know, I'm a kid. I'm coming home from school every night. The old man's got the paper spread out. And the way the contest worked, they had these pictures, you see, that were all jumbled up. They look like a cross, like a, like a jigsaw puzzle. You're supposed to cut them out and fit the faces back together. Then right underneath it, who the, who the hero was and what he did, see? Like Jack Dempsey, heavyweight champion of the world. And they had four of them every night. And so the old man puts together the first four and sends them off. I mean, the first four were nothing, you know, like uh, Joe Lewis. I mean, even a cretin who couldn't read knows Joe Lewis. The old man is laughing. This is nothing. This kind of Babe Ruth. And that kind of stuff. Well, a couple of days go by. He sends in the next bunch of puzzles. And he sends in the next. Gets a letter one day. Says, you have become a member of of a select group of readers of the Chicago Daily America. Fans of knee-high orange, you have become a member of the group who are in the semi-finalists. Well, the old man never got this far in a puzzle before. And attention began to build in the house. And every night we'd come home, the old man's got papers out all over the floor, and he's... Now they're getting tough, by the way. The, the, the puzzle questions are getting fantastically difficult, like rugby players. And the old man... <laughs> what the hell, rugby? He didn't know what rugby was. You know? they, had, they had guys like uh, soccer players, and, and, uh, lady table tennis players. Really, you know, the wheat is being separated from the chap, you see. And, of course, his old friend, Zudok, had come over. Now, Zudok was, you know, guy from the plant. And Zudok would come over and, and, and just sit in kibitz. The old man says, now, look, Zudok, I cannot fool around with you. I am a semi-finalist. <laughs> I'm a member of a very select group. And God knows how far I'm going to go in this thing. But I feel like I'm going all the way. You know, there's a funny thing about victory. You begin to sense it. Anyone who's ever won anything begins to sense it's going to work. And so the old man began to feel that maybe it's going to work this time. 
And every night, the paper would come. He'd spread it all out. He's silencing the house. He's in the living room. He's got him laying all over the floor, and he's got these faces clipped out. These guys with these flat noses and cauliflower ears. You know, great sports heroes of the past. Well, about three or four weeks after the first letter, there was a kind of lull in the action. I come home one night. My mother comes to the door as I walk in. She says, shh, be quiet when you come in. Your father is a finalist. I said, what? I figured he had something, you know, some bad thing like scarlet fever. She said, he's a finalist. He just got a letter this afternoon that said he's out in the final round. I said, the final round of what? She says, the contest, the contest. Don't bother him. He's in the living room. And so I look in the living room, and there's the old man. And, and Zudok is sitting there quietly drinking beer, watching the old man work on his puzzle. And he has got the letter, and the letter is laying on the dining room table. And it said, Dear Sir, we wish to congratulate you. You are one of the select finalists in the knee-high $50,000 jackpot contest. $50,000 in magnificent prizes, including a two-week trip, all expenses paid to the Bahamas. Many other valuable awards. 50000 bucks. The whole damn neighborhood wasn't worth $50,000. You could have bought him in Indiana for probably twice that. I mean, this was staggering. And the word was beginning to pass out among the neighbors that my father was a finalist. And people would walk by the house and point. You know, a finalist in the contest lives there. He'd come out on the porch, you know. He'd just look, no, 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 no. He was not feeling at any point any sense of, of uh, swagger. No way. Because this was a difficult contest and it took dedication. Well, it happened. After he sent in his last set of puzzles, there was a pregnant moment. He put the mail into the mailbox and the die was cast. This was the last group of puzzle pictures. Well, two or three days went by, and everybody kept looking at the paper. They were going to publish the names of the winners. And sure enough, the following Wednesday, the Chicago Herald American came out with a full-page name of winners. And there, down in the S's, was my father. My God Almighty, the phone started to ring. A letter arrived. The same day, it says, Dear Sir, you are a winner of one of the valuable prizes, a major award at the knee-high contest match the athletes. Congratulations, sir. Zudok came over. Gertz, Uncle Carl. They sat around in a kitchen and ate meatloaf and drank beer saluted the old man and we waited for the major award I remember I remember one thing the old man said he says you know he was talking to my mother he says you know I've never been out of the country do you think you'll like the Bahamas my mother said I'd rather have a refrigerator he says oh anybody can get a refrigerator he says 
Who knows what we're going to win? A $50,000 award. Who knows? And the excitement was fantastic because they did not say what award the winner had won. Whether he was a first award winner or a second award, he was an, a winner. One night, about 5.30 in the evening, you know, I don't think most of us are aware in our lives of true turning points that actually change the course of our lives when it happens. It's only in retrospect that we know there was a turning point. 5.30 that night, I had just come home from school. My kid brother was under the day bed. My mother was hanging over the sink. She had her usual Brillo pad. She had her hair up. She had these aluminum rheostats in her hair. Wearing her rump-sprung Chinese red chenille bathrobe she always wore. Just a day like any other day. The old man was sitting in the kitchen there drinking a bottle of beer. It was a kind of a tension because I had been there for about three or four days because he was a winner. But it was just a quiet night. You could smell the red cabbage cooking. When suddenly there was a knock on the back door. Mother goes to the door and she says, yes. And there's a guy standing there wearing a gray uniform and he's got a giant box. He says, uh, excuse me, would you sign for the package? My mother turned and said to my father, there's a package here for you. The old man says, my God, the major award, it's here. He jumped up and ran to the kitchen, to the kitchen door, and together, he and this guy, this delivery man, dragged this fantastic box into the kitchen. It was a gigantic, great cardboard box, had signs all over it, like, do not tilt. Danger, fragile, this side up, valuable contents. It was the first thing the old man had ever won in his life. I don't know whether or not most people know what it's like to be a Chicago White Sox fan. White Sox had not risen above sixth place in two generations. My father was a White Sox fan. He had known nothing but defeat all of his life. First time he had ever won anything, and there it was in the kitchen, standing there under the light that hung over the table. Well, he says, get back, get back, everybody. Don't move. Now, don't touch it. This is a major award. Maybe this $50,001 bill is in there. Who knows what it is? Give me a knife, quick. My mother takes the knife out of the kitchen table. We had this enamel kitchen table. I had this drawer under it. Had all kinds of string and clothespins under the drawer. Had this rubber knife that was in there. My kid brother was in this rubber knife period. <laughs> <laughs> and in her frantic, you know, she just reaches and grabs and hands the knife to the old man and he gets this rubber dagger. <laughs> He's, what the hell is this? And he throws the rubber dagger up back of the, gets the kitchen wall. The kid brother comes running out. And he's standing there cowering up against the refrigerator. And we all stood and waited for the big moment. He takes the bread knife and he slits the top. And he says, now back up. I don't want anybody to fool around with this thing. It says fragile. He opens up the top of the cardboard box and you see all of this straw and hay suddenly start flying out. It's tremendous packing. He starts pulling it out. This box is about eight feet tall. 
He's pulling this stuff out and the straw is flying all over. And he says, oh, my God, would you look at that? And he reaches down in the box. Nobody could see what was in there because it was high. And he's standing up in a chair and he slowly pulls it out. And there is this fantastic, unbelievable object. It's wrapped in paper. It's about six, seven feet tall. And he moves it carefully over to the to the sink where we had this sideboard. And he sets it up. He says, don't, don't touch it. And he starts to strip the paper off of it. And as he stripped it off, you could see it was a lady's leg. It looked at least twice life-size, magnificent. And it had a lady's foot on the bottom with a lady's shoe. And it was in magnificent flesh tones. I remember what my mother said. She says, what is it? The old man said, it's a leg. She says, but what is it? He says, well, it's, it's a statue. Oh, no, this is a statue. Now, nobody in our neighborhood had ever owned a statue. A statue was something he had in the park. We had a statue. It was a lady's leg, and it was pink. She had a fantastic knee. And sticking out of the top of it was a brass rod with these two sockets. And the old man says, do you see what that is? That is a lamp. He says, my God, what a man. Fantastic lamp. And he rushes back to the box and pulls out more of this sawdust and stuff. And then he takes out of the bottom of the box the shade. It was lingerie pink with lace on the bottom. And he sets the shade on the top of the lamp. And there it was, a lady's leg with a lingerie pink shade and the leg came right out of it. My mother didn't say anything. The old man just took a look at that thing. Remember, it was the first thing he ever wanted in his life and he says, my God, isn't that beautiful? Look at that lamp. Fantastic. It had a tag hanging out of the bottom. He reads the tag. He says, listen to this. This lamp is a scientifically designed reading lamp and also a tasteful, restful night lamp. He says, it's got a switch that goes to two sides. Wait a minute, let's try this thing out. And we rush into the living room, and he puts this thing on a table there, and he says, go get the extension plug. He hollers at me, see. And of course, our house had only two outlets in the entire house. The entire house was strung together with extensions. It was very critical. If you... <laughs> if you pulled the wrong thing out, the refrigerator stopped. You know, the washing machine went on. It's <laughs> he says, go get, the, go get the extension from behind the refrigerator. So I run out, I get the extension, and he takes that thing, and he starts hooking it up, and he crawls behind the, crawls behind the sofa. You know, my mother was always afraid of electricity, and he's behind the sofa. See, there's thousands of wires. There's great rats nests back there. And she says, be careful. You remember what happened to Uncle Fred? <laughs> Well, Uncle Fred had taken a correspondence course on how to repair super heads. And the second lesson was power supplies. And Uncle Fred tried to test a power supply for a Stuart Warner super head, and he was ionized on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, my Aunt Teresa, who was Uncle Fred's wife, when she saw Uncle Fred ionized, all that was left was one shoe and his teeth. 
He was a purple haze hanging over the Stuart Warner super head. They finally had to take it back to the store and get it fixed. They never did get Uncle Fred back. And so my mother says, don't forget what happened, Uncle Fred. And the old man, see, absolutely, he was one of these guys that could do anything. He says, for God's sakes, I know what the hell I'm doing. And there was a flash. And he says, for God's sakes! Some blue smoke come out from behind the, behind the sofa. He came out and his hand was black. He says, okay, now stand back. I'm going to try this thing. And he turned the switch to the first position. The tasteful night lamp position. And the entire family just stood there. It was the most beautiful thing any of us have ever seen. The leg itself lit up. It glowed inside. Glowing, luminescent human flesh. The entire leg glowed. And every time the old man reached up under the lingerie to adjust the switch, it was vaguely obscene. He loved it. And then he turned on the full reading lamp. And the entire living room glowed as it had never glowed before. The old man said, God, isn't that something? Look at that. It's a major award. Beautiful. He says, I know exactly where that should go. Right in the middle of our picture window. You know, this was great right in the middle of the period when people always put a lamp in the middle of the picture window for some nutty idea. And our picture window was, you know, about two feet by three feet. as a little window, you know. Looked out on the streetcar line. And, you know, it was a picture. Thing. And so he cleared away all the stuff from the picture window. My mother had this horse she bought at Goldblatt's. And he put... Yeah, it was a black enamel horse. So he put that baby right in the middle there, see? He turned it on full blast. And then he ran down the... Went, went out the house and down the steps and out in front of the house to look at it. And I went with him. He says, my God, look at that. It's fantastic. That's beautiful. My mother didn't say a word. She just looked at him. He says, move it a little bit to the left. She says, all right. She moved it a little bit. He says, hold it there. And already cars were beginning to stop on the street. We were the first family in the entire neighborhood to have a lady's leg in the window lit up. The old man was decades ahead of his generation. He was the first true fanatic of pop art. And like all fanatics and pioneers, he was ahead of his time and misunderstood. A lonely man. And he'd sit there and look at that lamp. It represented everything in his life that he had never had before. It was gorgeous. Incidentally, only coincidentally, a lady's leg was also the trademark of the knee-high company. It was a commercial, magnificent piece of true pop art. Well, every night he would sit by his lamp and read the Chicago White Sox scores. My mother said nothing. There was a curious tension began to build in the house. Kids can tell this. And one night, just before supper, the old man was in the kitchen. I was downstairs in the basement. My kid brother was in the john. Spent a lot of time in the john. 
My mother was dusting. And she was humming away. Radio on top of the refrigerator was playing. We had this radio. White plastic case. Had tape on it. Had an airplane dial. Had a hum. Bing Crosby was always singing Sweet Little Lottie. My mother was always listening to that. I remember asking her one day, what the, what's a sweet Leilani, Mom? She says, you wouldn't understand. I never did. She's dusting and the radio's playing. It was just a day like any other day. When all of a sudden, from the living room, we heard this tremendous crash. Every one of us knew instantly. Instinctively, man knows when his world has changed. It's like... The minute that the first bomb landed at Hiroshima, man instinctively knew nothing would be the same after that. There was this crash. And for one brief instant, there was a kind of an electric air. And the old man suddenly in the kitchen heard it. And he yelled, What the hell is that? And I heard him run down the hall into the living room. I came up from the basement. My kid brother came running out of the jar with his pants off. And there it was, spread out all over the... The old man's major award. And my mother stood there amid all the wreckage with her dust cloth. And he took one look at it and he says, My God, you broke it. My mother said, Yes. I'm sorry. He looked her right in the eye. It's the first time I ever heard him talk like this. He said, you broke it. I know why you broke it. Because you're jealous. She says, jealous? Jealous of what? A ridiculous lady's leg? He says, no! You're jealous because I won. Where's the glue? He says, we're out of glue. He says, God damn it. And he ran out of the house, jumped into the car. And you can always tell the attitude of the old man at any given time by the way he drove the car. He had this fourth-hand Oldsmobile, an Oldsmobile Rocket 98. He stepped on that baby, and then first, and you could feel the gravel hit the front of the house. <laughs> he was gone. Ten minutes later, he came back with two great big tubes of glue. The kind of glue that they used to, to glue together exploded locomotives. <laughs> and he squatted down at the kitchen table and he started to glue that thing together. He never got it glued together. It didn't work. And finally he got up walked out to the back porch and dropped the whole thing in the wastebasket. Came back and sat down and started to read the sport page. They never mentioned it again. But nothing was ever again the same in our family. Everything was changed after that. What a beautiful story. Thank you. <laughs> I really mean it, and I know Arnie feels it, too, and our family. Did you like that story? Even our engineer story, is clapping. Yeah. That is so, so great, I tell you. Well, now, the question is, did she do it deliberately or not? No one ever knew. Well, what happened was that her dust cloth 
just happened to catch on to the lingerie part of the shade, you see. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Deliberately. Listen, would you take some phone calls? Sure. Why not? Because I know, and I had said that you would, I was going to try to ask... By the way, that story, uh, which, which, uh, which is a chapter, really, of In God We Trust, mm -hmm. All Others Pay Cash, has been incorporated in the film we just finished. It's part of the film. Oh, beautiful. And uh, Jimmy Broderick does a magnificent job in that scene uh, with the lamp. Well, now, he, he really plays does. your father. He plays the father. Mm -hmm. yeah. who, who plays you? Uh, there's a young actor. Uh, what's his last name again? Mm -hmm. David Elliott plays uh, the kid, uh -huh. who at that time in the story... Uh, we changed the ages. There's a lot of uh, very technical things in this, but he's about 16 in this story. And uh, I play myself. Uh, you know, not myself, really. I play the guy. See, it begins with me driving along a road. Uh, and this, all, this whole scene, the whole story takes place in his mind. In other words, he's telling you the story, this guy. And it's, it's a, you, you can see all this stuff happening. And uh, so I play that character, and uh, and and I, I comment, narrate on it as it goes. But that story is one of the one of the. See, each one of the characters in this in this film it's an interesting film. I think you'll find it technically interesting. In that most films, if you if you if you think back on the films you've seen, that the that the major thing in a film is that something happens to one guy, and all the other characters, in a sense, are sub, uh, are subservient subservient to that. But in this film, everybody has a specific simultaneous action. In other words, the father's big thing is this lamp story. The mother has her own thing, which happens to be uh, Leopold Doppler and the Great Gravy Boat Riot. She is a gravy. She's a, a, a Dish Night fan, and there's a fantastic thing happens to her in the Dish Night. <laughs> the kid, on the other hand, has a thing happen to him. He, he's, he's involved in the prom with Wanda Hickey. And each character has his own story, which is so really basically independent of the others. And they, they're, 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 it's just like in your own family. You know, when you're at home, you may be doing something, and you never mention it to somebody else because it's, it's your own private life. When does it come out? It'll be on. It's, it was a very interesting production. It was uh, put together under the aegis of a, of, a, of a, well, it's a subdivision within the public broadcasting system called Visions. Mm -hmm. was done out of the West Coast, and it'll be on the air the last part of October or the first part of November. Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, I, I think it's the finest thing I've ever had anything to do with. We really worked. Oh, yes, after that it'll be in theaters. It, 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 was, it was a two-year work of, uh, of love, of turning out the script and all Did that. Did you do it here in, in the city? No, it was shot. Uh, largely all the steel mill sequences. It's uh, this, the backdrop Arnold is in the steel mill world of northern Indiana. All those sequences were shot at Inland Steel, mm. and uh, that whole northern Indiana sequences and the 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 interiors and a lot of the rest of it was shot all around Boston because we were using a crew from WGBH, a camera crew. Mm -hmm. It takes in a lot of territory. Oh yeah. Gee, you know that is. I've heard that story, I think twice. In some 20 years, that is without a doubt uh, the most touching, the most fantastic story. And it, uh, I don't know, it, it sort of actually demonstrates what happens to uh, 
people, just like his uh, uh, father, who thinks that he has won some classic thing, and then, unfortunately, it has to be broken in the end. Yeah, by somebody who's close to him and deliberately at that. <laughs> May we pause for station oh. identification and take care of a little bit? And you, you, you did it so well. Just magnificent yeah. uh, storytelling. Thank you, John. Uh, storytelling is uh, something very dear to my heart. It's uh, it's yeah. my art form, and that's when I. Uh, it's just I beautiful. Certainly excel in it. I haven't told that story uh, as a, as a as a performance. God, it's been how many years? Probably ten years. Well, John, so you did it at NBC the last time that I know. Yeah, John, when you were over yeah. there. John, you told me about this story, but you said, I'm not going to try to tell it. The next no. time we have, it was after you were here, Gene. He said, oh, I should have had him tell the Nehi story. He said, the next time he's here, he said, <laughs> I, see, I'm not even going to try. John, could I just interrupt for yeah. a moment? Because we are a bit behind on yeah. this. May we just take care of a little business and we'll yeah. be right back? Go ahead. Fine. This is WMCA, New York.